Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. It's a small panel today. And we have a guest, which I'm just going to say Martin, because I'm probably going to fuck up the name otherwise. So Martin, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody why you're here? No, uh, you don't mess up my name uh, too badly. Uh, so yeah, I'm Viva Martinia, but most commonly people just call me Martin. And on the internet, I'm known as uh, QQWY on most places. And yeah, I have been invited here to talk a little bit about a library I've been writing called TypeCheck. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So type check, I think the, the secret is in the name there. So it's probably about types and probably about checking them. And um, why don't you tell us a bit like how, how you came to writing this library and what it actually does and why people should care about it. So indeed, type check indeed does type checking. To be uh, precise, it adds checks at, uh, to your Elixir code. And these checks are then run at runtime as part of your normal, normal Elixir program. And it does this by using the same type specification format, which Elixir itself already uses. So essentially, the library contains a little bit of, of macro and, and meta programming code that converts these normal type specifications, which you probably are already writing in your uh, Elixir modules. And it adds, uh, it uses that to wrap your code with type checking code, which then results in an error when someone passes in some input to a function which actually doesn't match the shape you're expecting, or also when a function returns a result which doesn't have the expected return type. And in these cases, uh, like like extra effort has been, been done to make sure that the output, so the, the error messages you see, the, the exceptions which are raised, contain a lot of information of what exactly is wrong so rather than just say, uh, just seeing, okay, well, you passed in this this list of posts and it's not okay. It says, okay, you passed in a list of posts, but actually the third entry in this list contains a particular field which is nil, but it should not be nil. So that is the the main the main idea, the main thing which type check does. And I guess there's like a like a story there, like how you came to write this, right? Or is it more of an academic interest of yours? Is it like a thing you wrote maybe for work? Is it a thing you wrote just to play around with it? How, how did you come to write this? So I, I have been interested in many different programming languages for quite some time. And in during university, I was introduced to Haskell. And 
I found this very static approach to typing and to being, well, to functional programming and being really explicit about what kind of things particular functions were able to do. Very interesting, but is also, of course, uh, very difficult to start uh, writing this kind of code because there's quite a bit to learn at one time. And, but yeah, so I, I liked Haskell and also languages uh, such as Rust, for instance, which also to some extent try to do the same thing. And, but I also, on the other hand, came from, uh, from work from Ruby originally, which we used a lot. And then I started to use Elixir, like uh, I think seven years ago now. And I liked writing Elixir a lot. However, this, like from time to time during work projects, you encounter some kind of bug and you think, oh, this, this was so trivial, uh, but I didn't notice it until I spent three hours debugging. So for instance, a couple of weeks back, we, uh, we, we were writing a Phoenix, I forgot, uh, forgot the word, what, uh, what's the term? Phoenix controller, Phoenix context. No, so the, and a, a WebSocket, the WebSocket interface. A Phoenix channel. So, so a channel, yeah, thank you. So a couple of weeks back, we were writing a Phoenix channel API to uh, connect to, to a mobile application. And the Phoenix application was returning some Elixir data structures, and th those were converted to JSON to be sent to this uh, this API to the phone. And it seemed to work nice, uh, to, to work well, but we encountered a couple of errors where the mobile application actually was not able to pick up the resulting messages. And it turned out that that the serialization of the data structures went well, but actually there were no longer valid JSON because I was not aware, but it turns out that the, the top at the top level, JSON can only be an object or an array. So if you just have a plain string, for instance, uh, or a plain number, then you can't return that as, as JSON. You have to wrap it either in an array or an object. And uh, so that was going wrong. And it, yeah, it cost a couple of hours debugging uh, that to figure out that that was the problem. And this is this is one example from, from yeah, which I had recently in, in practice in production code. But also, I, I just like being able to tinker even when it's already late and actually I should be asleep. But, you know, I like to be able to to have some level of confidence in the code I write. And I have this feeling when, when using these very statically typed languages that you get a lot of confidence, but also you have to make the investment upfront to use those. And so uh, a bit of the idea behind writing TypeCheck and the main reason why I started uh, on this project is to be able to get some of those same guarantees, a, a level of confidence, if you if you will, but in an opt-in way where you could gradually introduce it into an existing code base, uh, module by module, and get some confidence for your main core business logic, for instance, where that might be useful. And I, I was aware, for instance, and I have been tinkering with Dialyzer before, but yeah, Dialyzer is difficult to use, does not have really uh, clear, understandable error messages. And well, it, it, it's can return a, a lot of false positives and also false negatives because it tries to reason without actually uh, running the code about your whole code base, but it can only know something about the places where you have added types. And it's very difficult to perform these kinds of checks without actually running the code. And that is where Dialyzer, uh, well, there's a limitation of Dialyzer. So that was sort of the, the background behind why I started uh, working on type check. And then back in the day, I think it was uh, Chris Keatley started working on Norm. And this was a little bit of a similar project where with the, with the idea that we could 
have some kind of specification to normalize data structures. I believe that the original idea behind Norm was more to, to check user input or input between microservices. But from that, I found out from, he, he linked to some prior work in, in his talks and also on his repository that, for instance, in Racket, there is already a complete system in place that does this runtime type checking. And also in Clojure, it has been added the, these last uh, couple of years. More recently for Python and Ruby, similar uh, either libraries or also uh, being built into the language, similar systems have been built. So that was sort of the background where I thought, well, I think something like this would be really nice in Elixir. And it would be especially nice if it could work by just reusing the existing type specifications, which we are already using for documentation purposes anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think dialysis, especially a tool a lot of, a lot of people have like this love-hate relationship with, because it's definitely true like that, that you, when dialyzer gives you an error, it definitely found something wrong, but it's not very specific about what that thing, wrong thing is. Because this one error message, what was it again? Something about no return, I forgot. But uh, that's like the <laughs> feels like a catch all for all kinds of errors. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, there are even sometimes when reading the source code of the Elixir standard library itself, you find some odd code in there, which then has a comment that says, well, if you write this another way, then dialyzer complains. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that kind of. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Yeah. But this is only runtime checking, right? Like, so, like with Dialyzer, you can kind of do a check to see if these types and everything kind of matches up. But this one, it's only you write it and then when it blows up during runtime, then you know that there's a problem, right? Yes, that is correct. However, because it uses your, your existing types, you can use it alongside with, for instance, Dialyzer. Is this something so, you do? Yes. Yes, because it still uh, exports the normal types, which like the normal type specifications. So you also see them in your documentation. And yeah, and, and it also works with Dialyzer. I, like a couple of days back, someone mentioned that a particular combination of type checks actually results in Dialyzer complaining about one of these pieces of code with which type check is adding. So, well, I'm currently investigating what is happening there. But yes, the, the, the two things can very much work together and... That's also one of the, the, the advantages and one of the reasons to reuse the existing Elixir type specification format. Just, just so I got this wrong. So basically, Dialyzer is complaining about a piece of code which is generated to check the specifications. Dialyzer is also checking. Yes, but I mean, it, <laughs> I, I believe it's, it's, it's a piece of code. Well, Dialyzer is complaining about some code which never gets run. Or something okay. like that. So the, there, there's some code added, and there's probably a case statement which, uh, if uh, you pass in a certain parameter to a parameterized type, so you know a list of type A, then for a particular A's, then you end up with a case statement where a particular yeah, branch okay. will never be run. Something like that. But uh, okay. I, I need to investigate. And, and uh, but I mean, it's nice that that it's possible to to find these things. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is a bit funny. <laughs> I'm curious, like, I mean, you already mentioned Norm. There's mm -hmm. some other work happening in that space. I remember a while back on the Code Beam conference, I think that was way before a pandemic, there mm. was this talk about a tool called Gradualizer. I think development has halted a bit there, but what they were basically trying to do is also use the specifications Dialyzer uses, but apply them more strictly 
because like what dialyzer does it has mm -hmm. this i actually learned it in this talk like what dialyzer does is have this success typing it's called and like basically as long as one path through your program returns the correct type dialyzer will be like yeah that's okay mm -hmm. uh, but like and gradualizer is like more strict on that front and i was wondering like uh if you looked at also these kind of work, which because, because Gradualize is also at, at compile time. It's not like, or not compile time, rather, but rather like a specific type checking tool like, like Dialyzer and not a runtime. I, no, I've, I've not looked into Gradualizer in, uh, in a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. but, but again, it, it should be very easy to use it alongside type check. And well, something which is really nice about these runtime checks is that you can really make them as specific as you want, including checking things which you can't normally do with normal Elixir types. For instance, you can't, with the normal type specifications, uh, check for a particular floating point value or a particular string value. Those are things which are not supported by the Erlang type system as it was built back in the day, and that has trickled down also into uh, Elixir's type system. And for better or worse, I mean, there are reasons for it as well. Like, for instance, with floats, you very easily get these that you try to compare two floats which are very, very close to each other and you would expect them to be the same, but they're not. I mean, people also say never use floats for monetary values, for instance. And I think this is a similar reason, but there but are certain... The, yeah, this whole thing ahead. like 0.1 plus 0.2 is not, does not equal 0.3 and all that. Yes, exactly. Yeah? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in certain situations, it, it would definitely be nice to yeah to be able to to perform such checks. Or also, now so, sometimes you have more more information about your your particular business domain, which you can't really explain into plain types. But you can add a, what what we call like a, a type guard, which where you can write arbitrary Elixir code to add that as to your type as well. Uh, because essentially, when you do type checking at runtime, the type system, per definition, becomes dependently typed because the types themselves are runtime values and you can use any runtime value also as a type or in your types or any piece of code for that matter. And it makes it very powerful. But of course, you have this little bit of performance overhead of doing these as runtime, which you don't have if you were to use a, a static type checker. And what, what prompted you to go down the runtime route? I mean, you just told us like what the story was, right? Did you consider to write like a dialyzer 2.0 or was it always, hey, let's start with this low-hanging fruit? Because I, I do guess this runtime thing is easier to wrap your head around if you're not yeah so i was not very much both of those indeed where uh, on the on one hand i was not really happy from the output i was getting from just using dialyzer and on the other i was thinking hey uh well how how far can we actually get when trying to parse these types which elixir already uses and just create some code uh for it by using some uh, clever use of macros because what I did find myself doing a lot was adding guard clauses to all of my public functions, especially in uh, open source libraries. I mean, in your own like application code, it's you're probably the only person or your team is the only group that uses it. But in libraries, you really want to make it clear to people using your library if something goes wrong, whether it's a bug in the library or whether someone is just calling your functions wrong. And that <clears throat> that thing, making the contract of your functions clear, so the what the preconditions and postconditions are, or what invariants there are. Uh, so essentially, when a mistake happens, is it the fault of the caller or the fault of the implementation of a function? That is what I wanted to try to tackle with uh, with type check, and that is also why I decided to use 
runtime type checking to mm-hmm. uh, address this problem. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. That makes me wonder. Like, there's this whole a big of big emotion in the Galaxy community of like, especially around Phoenix contexts, right? Where you have this basically this public API, let's so to say, you then call from your controllers, and everything below that is more like internal. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this something where you say type check would be used, for example, at the context level, and then inside of your application logic, it's not that valuable anymore, and um, because at that point the data should already be fine so it's more to protect from the outside world than from the inside world or is it something you you you, for example yourself liberally use all over the place i use it very liberally now because it is very easy to add very effortless because probably your code already has these type signatures in your modules and and at your uh, these uh, at spec for every uh, function and then adding type check to a particular module really is as simple as adding a use type check line at the top of your module and then for every type which you want to get checked so, uh, you add an exclamation point to the end of either the mm. add type or add spec and then type check is able to pick it up and uh, will add a runtime check for all add specs so uh, but i definitely think that the phoenix context layer that is the the kind of situation where it makes a lot of sense to to add checks because indeed often we are at least mentally working on one context, communicating with uh, with the rest of the application, and then maybe working later with another context and uh, the modules and, and, and schemas that are used inside. But also um, another place where I think it's really useful is if you do some kind of calculation. So some kind of essentially just pure Elixir code, which is not necessarily related to the database or, or calling external APIs or, or anything, but just to make sure that what you're trying to do there makes sense. I'm kind of curious if you actually take a look at like what Gleam is doing. They, they mm-hmm. have some kind of type checking in there. Yeah, that was would have been my next question too. Like, what do you think about Gleam? Because there's a lot of motion happening in the Beam community around types. Definitely. And Gleam is a, Gleam is a wonderful project. And from time to time, I, I talk with, uh, with Louis and, and, and other people uh, working and discussing Gleam. But of, of course, like Gleam is very much similar to, I think mostly from a syntax point of view, uh, ML language, but from the type checking, uh, very similar to Elm and also a little bit to Haskell, although less powerful at this point because it doesn't support type classes uh, yet. And I hope at some point that it will, because that is for me personally the, the, a bit of a showstopper to use it in production because I think that that really helps to write generic code and the kind of code which I usually end up writing in Elixir is generic to the point where it is difficult to uh, to implement in either Gleam or, or Elm. But uh, Louis so diligently working on Gleam and like every couple of days there's another update where recently he got like rebar support working and mm. publishing libraries to HexPM working in Gleam and it's absolutely wonderful to see and it, it's great that we now have so much choice inside of the Beam of picking different languages or also uh, combining them. Yeah, I, I definitely think that Gleam is a very, very nice project and something which in the next couple of years hopefully will yeah be be used a lot in uh, in the beam community yeah yeah as, as, as you just thought, said like you know has this milestone with its own build tool and i feel like that could be that could become a turning point of adoption because up until now from what i understood it was always a bit finicky <laughs> so let, let, let's see where the where the road leads there 
speaking about where the road leads, so what are some some next steps you see with type check? Is there anything you see on the roadmap you would like to work on? I mean, one thing which popped into my mind was I could imagine using the same amount, same information type check is now using to do runtime checks to, for example, help with tests and do like mm. property-based tests. Yes, and that is so that is already part of type check. It is ah, okay, uh, nice. the, the, sort of the second half of the library, which I was hoping we would uh, get to during our conversation <laughs> today at some point. So yes, besides yeah. <laughs> besides generating, so adding this runtime code, uh, this runtime type checking code to your uh, to your functions. Another thing, because type check stores all the the types and uh, function specifications which you have defined for your modules, it, it store stores this in the actual compiled module, and this means that in your tests you can create what are so-called spec tests, and those essentially from from a user perspective, from a developer perspective, you add them very similarly to how you would add a doc test, where you can just say spec test module, and then it will test for all the function specifications, whether the function actually works correctly for any particular arbitrary input that follows its type specification. So to give you an example, say we're writing an implementation of an average function, and we say, okay, this function, given any list of numbers, it will return the, the average, which is a number. And then the implementation is enum.sum uh, over a list of numbers divided by enum.count over a list of numbers. Well, it seems perfectly fine. And at runtime, it also probably is fine when we try it for a couple of examples. But then when we run this in a property test, uh, which we just can do by, by writing spec test our module, then it will try all different kinds of lists and very quickly, it will encounter the situation where actually when you add a an, an empty list, you are dividing by zero. And then that uh, is a really nice way to be aware of either that the function is not uh, working correctly given uh, given the types, so that there is a situation of input which results in the, in the function having a problem. Or in this particular case, you have to think about, okay, well, uh, I can't really always return a number giving any arbitrary list. So either I need to restrict the input type and say, well, you can only give me non-empty lists, or you say you, you return an okay or error tuple, for instance, where uh, mm. in if, if the list is empty, you just immediately return uh, return error. But those kinds of situations you don't necessarily encounter at runtime, and but, and, but it would be really nice if you can test your, your functions for being proper, being consistent, already before you deploy your application, of course. And these spec tests are a really easy, really effortless way to, to add property testing to your functions. And of course, it works the best with functions that don't have side effects. But yeah, other than that, you just add spec test module name, and then it automatically generates the property tests for all functions that have a function specification. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out 
how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So at that point, it's basically like a little bit of compile time, test time checking of a type slide. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I wonder, like, is this something you've built and type check completely internally or are you, are you depending on libraries like stream data? Yeah, so uh, indeed, we're de- uh, the library depends on stream data, which is an optional dependency for the mm-hmm. obvious reason that you probably only need this in, uh, in, in your testing environment. Yeah, makes um, sense. Yeah, but that actually the, the, the property tests that it generates, that, that code all happens at the type check side. And for instance, we're able to also generate property tests for higher order functions. So for parameters, which are themselves functions, which take other types as input. And that kind of data generation is not some, so, uh, something which stream data itself currently allows. So there's there's quite a bit of code added on top of of the plane generators which stream da- data provides to actually cover all of the yeah all of the types that uh, the Elixir standard library ships with. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, also, like for our listeners who don't know what stream data is, like in a nutshell, it's basically a library to generate a stream of data, as the name suggests. For example, to say generate strings and also generate strings maybe which are all five characters long, that kind of thing. Uh, we will add a link in the show notes. One thing I, I'm wondering here is like uh, how much of that development you talked about and how much of the things you're working on now maybe, how much of that is driven by what you imagine TypeTrick to be and how much of that is driven by feedback from the community? Mm. So at, at the start, of course, it was very much my personal imagination. But TypeCheck has now been around for, I think, two years, two and a half years. And during that time, there have been a number of people who have also started using it and regularly give feedback, which is really helpful. So I, I would say that most of the actually most of the good ideas, such as that now you're actually able to just use the normal add type and add spec syntax, but then with this added exclamation point to make it clear that we want to do something special. That idea uh, came, if I remember correctly, from uh, David Baldwin on the Elixir community, where uh, so the on the Elixir forum, because b- before that there were just normal macro names uh, rather than with the uh, with the add in front, and okay. well, like it it worked fine until you wanted to run the Elixir formatter and then it would completely mess up the indentation of your types because it would not recognize the types as being uh, type signatures, but try to format them as, where, uh, as if they were arbitrary normal Elixir code. And yeah, so so I would say that most of the good ideas which have happened during last, the last half a year are no longer my own ideas. And I'm actually very <laughs> happy about that because, I mean, I'm not that uh, smart. I guess. <laughs> well, you know, Haskell must count for something. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> I'm so curious like about, a... you guys are a pretty serious project because you have, already have a logo and everything. So it's pretty uh, hardcore to get the logo up there. Who, who designed the logo and is there some meaning to it? I, because it's quite I, I made the logo also uh, myself. Nice. Yeah, thank, thank you. Nice, nice to hear that it looks... Uh, it looks professional. It looks, yeah, it, so looks it looks professional. professional. I was a little bit surprised. It's like, would you guys hire up for this? And uh, hmm. like, like I said, is there a meaning to it? Because it's, it's quite interesting, the, the style. The style of the logo. Or, yeah, so yeah, at some point I was thinking about, okay, yeah, what, what kind of logo would make sense? And then because, well, we in, in Elixir, all jokes and many package names have something to do with alchemy in one way or another. So I ended up taking the the wheel of uh, star 
signs, you know, from from uh, horoscopes. Uh, mm-hmm. So so the different uh, yeah, I think star yeah, signs okay, is the English yeah. word. Yeah, I recognize it now that you mentioned it. Yeah, so those are th- those are the symbols that you see around there, and I, I thought it would make sense to say, okay, yeah, well, we have all these different values, but they all have a different type and a different star sign, different origin, and it has something to do with alchemy. And uh, yeah, like how how would you otherwise indicate a collection of types or or something like that? And I thought this this made sense at least in my mind. So I'm quite happy with how it turned out. Nice. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I quite I quite like this. It makes it a little bit more clear because sometimes you can tell when things are not quite correct when you get a runtime error like this. But yours is a little bit more verbose. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I I don't like is that it's got a little bit too much text for me. Like I rather just say this is kind of like I like the way that Elixir has it right now, where it's like okay, you passed in this, and this is what you you, you know this is kind of where the error happened. Like maybe this card yeah. or something. This one's a little bit like. Kind of gives me nightmares because, like, when I have to read Python docs, I have to read. I just want to get like, what is, what is this? What is this thing? You know, like, what did I? What should I have passed in? Which and what did I get? Rather than like, oh, so so you don't want to read, Ellen, but you always recommend books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like well, schizophrenic. I don't know what it is about Python docs, but they really want you to read books. When I just want to figure out how do I call a certain function or something, it drives me nuts. <laughs> Yeah, so something you don't, you can't see on the uh, when when looking at these uh, error messages in the GitHub, like the GitHub code examples. But you, yeah, you can only see when you try out the library yourself. Is that since a couple of months, everything uses the NC colors, so all the types are properly highlighted, uh, similarly to how normal values are highlighted in IEX, and oh, okay. other other parts are are highlighted in red, and that makes it a lot easier easier to read uh, or to rather to to pick out which parts of the text are actually relevant for you but it would unfortunately be difficult to to abbreviate most of this um, because type check doesn't really know what you are trying to do so it can only say hey this input doesn't match the type and this is why but it can't tell you whether your input is incorrect or whether you should make your type slightly more general, for instance. That is something which uh, only the user uh, can figure out. Yeah, and also, Alan, I mean, point. if it's too much reading, you can always go in and have like an abbreviated error version, right? Like boil it down to the basics. Okay, this is like call, this is the spec, this doesn't match. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> and the last the last line is always something like 10 is not an integer or nil is not a string. So that is always really clear but then of course the question is okay but where does this 10 actually come from or or, mm. or you know 10 yeah. 10.0 for instance well it's not an integer because in this case it is a float where, where does it come from and then yeah the, the reason that there are so many layers uh, in, in in between with uh, with explanation is because i was like in in one of my earlier projects uh, i was actually using norm but norm just tells you when when you pass uh, certain values in it doesn't match and yeah, okay. it, it might give you this this final problem where it says 10.0 is not an integer or but but that's about it and then you're like okay but i'm passing you know i'm reducing here over a list of 100 user structs where does this number come from and yeah yeah that is that is one of the things that i try to uh, to solve with having a more detailed uh, explanations have you tried kicking this back to norm because it seems like it could be interesting. I don't know. They're related, but not so... Like, I understand that each is kind of solving different problems or a different way, right? Yeah, so uh, there are a couple of very large differences between norm and uh, type check. The main one being that norm 
does all the lookup for, for the whole structure of the, of the specifications, also at runtime. And it uses its uh, own syntax for it, which looks a bit similar to guard clauses, but it supports only a small subset of all the particular guards which uh, ship with the Elixir library, uh, the Elixir standard library. But yeah, that, that's the largest difference between norm and type check, which would make it very difficult to, to combine them in that way. And, and again, like norm is more geared towards type checking input from users. And type check really is geared towards being able to take these type specifications which you're writing anyway in your modules and reusing them by effortlessly adding runtime type checks and also these uh, specification tests. And there is on the, on the, hack, on the uh, type check docs, there is a large document, which will probably also be listed in the show notes, which uh, in very de- has a very detailed comparison uh, between the two libraries. So, do, do you think it would make sense to to have type your your type check for like your inner modules and then like on your edges where you're dealing with what I believe they call contracts, right? That with that part would be norm. Does that make more sense to do? Possibly, but I'm like norm has been around longer. However, at least personally, I'm not entirely convinced that. Creating, uh, like looking up the, the specification of your type over and over again at runtime is a good way of doing things. Like there are many situations, of course, where it doesn't matter at all because your code, the, the, the actual speed of your code doesn't matter because you're waiting for a database or a TCP connection anyway. But it uh, that as well as the syntax of norm felt very limiting to me because you also have to com- yeah learn learn another domain specific language to be able to use norm which is not the case uh, here because you can use the existing types that Elixir already uh, uses elsewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. And to come back to something just now said with like looking up the types over and over, like I guess you're getting into performance, all of that. Is that something you also like benchmark, for example, how much overhead uh, type check introduces on like certain kinds of examples? It is something I'm looking at closely and Adding some benchmarks is something I want to start working on seriously during these next couple of months. Okay. The last major feature which was added to TypeCheck was adding support for, well, passing in functions as parameters. So actually adding support for function types. Now that that works, I really want to focus on benchmarking. And also to get this working, actually, we had to make certain checks slower. So I hope to be able to add more optimizations there as well for, for the cases where that is not necessary. But I have been looking uh, from the start very closely at the actual Beam code, which ends up being generated. And the Elixir compiler is amazing. It's, it's very clever in, for instance, if you have uh, some guard clauses in your function to check between some kind of base case and some kind of recursive case, and in there is a check whether you pass in an integer, for instance, then if your type is also checking for that, then the type check, runtime check, and this guard clause will be merged by the Erlang compiler because it's smart enough to figure out that uh, it would be doing the same thing twice. And those kinds of things are really, uh, really nice in my opinion. And the the goal of type check uh, with relation to efficiency is to keep the time complexity that your function has anyway the same. So it might add a constant factor on top of that, but not more than that. So if you are doing something with a large list, for instance, then the time will probably be linear in how many elements you have in the list. And maybe adding a signature on top might make this 1.5 times as slow or something like that, but never 
the amount of elements squared as low because then it would no longer work uh, when your lists grow larger and larger. So, so that is that is the goal. That is the the efficiency I am hoping to uh, to be able to achieve. And in most situations, that is already the case. And and finally, what is also possible because of all these checks are added at compile time, you can very easily specify that, for instance, you want these checks to be there in development and in a testing and maybe even on your staging environment, but not in production. Or And you can do this differently module per module as well. So that way oh, it's very, okay. very granular. That, that's neat. So you can basically say, okay, I'm, I'm going to buy into this additional overhead on staging, but and maybe on production, it's like required that we have certain certain performance yeah, requirements. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. That, that's, that's pretty neat. So you just said that, that, that you wanted to get into a bit of benchmarks uh, in the next few months. So is, is this what what's stopping you to go to version 1.0, right? Because right now it's 0.10, I think. And yes. Yeah, so we we briefly already did uh, briefly already asked. Okay, what's the roadmap? But then we got mm-hmm, the spec mm-hmm. tests. So yeah, let's get back to that. Yeah, saying one point zero. So uh, currently, uh, TypeCheck supports uh, roughly ninety to ninety five percent of the types which come with the Elixir standard library. The main thing which we do not support yet. Uh, and hopefully this will be added in the next couple of weeks when hopefully I, I have some spare time somewhere. But well, November and December is all, always a super busy time. The one thing which I really want to add before version 1.0 is this last 5%. And the main thing there is adding support for the required and optional keywords, which you can use when you are writing a map type. So for currently, it, uh, type check already works perfectly with normal structs or maps with uh, static keys, and it also already works well if you have a map that say that that has one type of key with one type of value. So you say, okay, a map with an, uh, any integers mapping to strings, for instance. But Elixir's types type specification language allows you to mix and match those two styles, and the type check does not support the full flexibility of that yet. And that, yeah, we we want to support that or get as close as possible at least to to allow people to actually write, yeah, and provide the types that, that are commonly used. And also TypeCheck itself, of course, wants to provide definitions for all the types that the Elixir standard library contains as well. Yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. That, that, that seems like a natural goal for 1.0. <laughs> okay, in your, like, I have one final question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like in your work on, on type check, and you already said that there were a lot of people who have been given you input on how it works. Was there like in the open source work anything which I don't know wasn't so nice, maybe because I mean, open source work can be very unrewarding at times. Let's say it like that. Because from some people have this notion of like entitlement hey, this maybe doesn't work and like what, what kind of stupid thing is that and why don't you fix it stupid library i have not encountered that so far with type check i do know like in in general open source is a, a labor of love and it takes a lot of time to to write something and to maintain it and mm. on one hand you feel very responsible for it but on the other time is it, it is difficult to to make time whenever someone asks a question and yeah sometimes it takes a couple of days and i'm actually very very impressed deeply impressed and have a lot of respect for what for instance joseph alim is able to do where very often 
when you ask a question or post an issue uh, on the Elixir mailing list or, or uh, GitHub repository, he's able to respond within an hour or a couple of hours. And yes, yes, that's right. That's insane. That's and it, it is insane. <laughs> I, I don't know if he is able to sleep at all. <laughs> and I'm also very impressed with how nice he is able to remain, even when people are, are sometimes yeah, giving short answers or, or feel entitled to having a particular uh, feature. And it is something which also, when I first started using Elixir a couple of years back, I was very impressed with. And one of the reasons why I started using it and, and, and reading more of it, and mostly also contributing my own time and open source efforts to it. Because back in the day, when I first started uh, reading Elixir, I was looking at it a, a weekend from work. They were considering moving a particular part of their infrastructure uh, from Ruby, maybe to Elixir, to speed particular uh, background uh, jobs to improve the performance of uh, particular background tasks. And they had heard from, from uh, other people that Elixir might be a, a possibility there. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me look at the website. Let me try the Getting Started Guide, etc." And then within a weekend, I had read uh, all of the Getting Started and the OTP guides. And I think uh, Sasha's book, Erlang in Action, the, the digital version, and uh, during that weekend, but I, I've, uh, but what I also read was that the Elixir community takes pride in taking documentation so seriously. So I saw some kind of typo somewhere in the Elixir standard library documentation, and I thought, okay, let's immediately test this. So I made a pull request on uh, on the Elixir's GitHub, and within the hour, it was closed and and fixed, and people were super super nice about it, and I was just blown away by uh, by the response that that got, because I had expected something like this to be open for weeks, if not months, because that is what you get in many other open source projects. So that was the main reason probably why I decided to also contribute some of my own time to this community and, and uh, started writing some libraries myself. That's pretty cool. A pretty cool story, to be honest. And like, nice to hear this from your community. I, I myself, I'm a big fan also from like Hex Docs. All of that is readily available at your fingertips. You don't have to like download it first. It's just there in the web to explore. And even there, I mean, there's a lot of work happening to make it easier to access with like keyboard shortcuts and interlinking between packages. So yeah, it's it's really documentation. Like the love for documentation is real. Like it's not a like a thing. Jose and others just say to appeal to developers, but it's real. Definitely, definitely. Okay, Martin, like I said, it was the last one last question, but I lied because there's one more question, unless Alan has something. Um, how do people reach you? <laughs> so the easiest way, probably, if you're an Elixir developer, is to reach out to me on the Elixir forum because I, I read it daily and often collaborate in discussions there. And there I'm known as QQWY. And the same is true for most other places on the internet as well. And on Twitter, I am known as at Martin. Well, probably there's a link in the show notes as well, if you want to reach me there, because don't don't feel the need to uh, to remember my name by uh, by ear. But those those are probably the, the easiest ways to reach me. And of course, you can also always write an issue on uh, one of the GitHub repositories, and you can make it as entitled as you want it to be. I won't mind. <laughs> and, uh, and I will get accepted. back to you. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, 
and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Okay, then let us go to picks. And Alan, why don't you start off this week with picks? Yeah, I have to say super happy that I know PG Admin because it's been a super awesome tool for debugging. So I've been recently actually uh, been in a good situation where one of my client projects has been massively hammered with new traffic. So that's good for me, good for him. But the bad part is that I wrote really, really bad queries and I only found out later on when things started timing out like crazy. And so using PG Admin helped me to figure out which parts of the uh, queries were slow just by drag and drop, you know, not drag and drop, but pasting the queries into there and then seeing a breakdown about which parts of the queries were super slow. So if you guys ever, I try using explain stuff like by myself, it couldn't really grab, quite grasp it, but using PG Admin really made it super clear that certain parts had to be optimized. So uh, that's really my pick for this week. Nice. Nice. I've actually, uh, I've done explaining like on the command line, never in PG Admin, but I, I do remember doing that on the um, with actual Neo4j, and they, they have also put in a neat, neat interface, which helped me figure out some things. It is every time when you think the database do, does one thing, it does another, and you find out that it's yes. faster, yes. but you also find out that your data just has a completely different shape than, than you thought, and uh, these kinds yeah. of tools are, are really, really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we actually had a nasty production issue a while back where like a query was incredibly slow, which was supposed to be fast, and it turned out like that the index was created wrongly, so that the planner was not picking the index but doing a sequential scan, but only in certain kinds of conditions. So yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, and without tools like like explain, <laughs> yeah, no chance. <laughs> I, I had a similar situation yesterday where uh, I was uh, doing some uh, some what's the English term. So yeah, it doesn't matter. I was helping out the out the company with some consulting. That's the that's the term. I, I was doing some consulting for a local company, and uh, there were certain queries also slow, and we had trouble figuring out whether it was the database that was slow or the application. And it turned out that actually the problem was that for speed they started to introduce some caching where they would calculate something at one time. For caching, they would calculate something and store the result in the uh, in the database to use later which was fine most of the time, but there were a certain, a couple of entries where actually actually this uh, serialized string turned out to be more than 100 megabytes. And then the server, when this particular record was requested in the web application, well, the server would first request this 100 megabytes from the database and then spend a considerable amount of time deserializing it before continuing with its work. And... Uh, in the end, it was not the query explainer that uh, figured this out, but some kind of a flame graph performance tool. But it's it's really worthwhile to figure out what data you actually have inside of your database. So is, is the flame graph performance to something you want to pick, Martin? Actually, I want to pick something else. Yeah. So recently, I I watched the talk which was given by by uh, Quinn Quinn Wilton at 100 year of uh, sorry at Codebeam America of this year, which is called 100 Years of Airline. I, I was not there in person because I, I live in Europe, but it now is available online since since two weeks ago. It's available to, to watch online on YouTube. And the, the this talk is absolutely, absolutely amazing. It was really nice to get some historic context uh, because Quinn starts all, uh, out talking about the discovery of the telephone and then how the first phone connections were actually made and then how the first phone switches were made when you want more than two phones connected together. 
and then how all of these things influenced the design of Erlang later on. And it it was really nice to to see all of these things from uh, so long ago, uh, which are still relevant today in one way or another. And it's also just a really yeah a, a really good presentation, really well presented. So I can very much recommend that. That sounds interesting. We're going to have to like tend to watch that. It's also something I usually, when people ask me about the Beam, and so it's, I always say that it's this plat, this this language and platform uh, and runtime built for telephone communication. And a lot of the problems they solved back then are relevant now again. So yeah, I can I can see how 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 that talk is is interesting to learn about this history. Okay. And then it's my turn with picks, and I have two picks this week, and one is techie and one not so much. My first pick is actually a book called Kubernetes in Action, and I've recently suggested that again to a colleague who started with our company, and he hasn't really done any Kubernetes before. And this book is, I think it hits the sweet spot between being specific about like certain technical capabilities of Kubernetes, but by also not being super boring to read <laughs> because it actually wow it does yeah it actually like goes into the the depth of like okay what what are these different resources Kubernetes and why do we need them and what are different like use case scenarios where you would want that and so it's it, it, I feel really feel it hits a sweet spot and there's now a version two in the making which is an early access in Manning because. Uh, version one was written a few years ago. So while it's still perfectly readable, there are some resources which used to be in alpha, which are now readily available, and some small things change, right? It's how the story goes. And there's a new version of the making. And this is my also my go-to book. If I ever look, need to actually look something up in Kubernetes, this is where, where I go. And the other thing is, com- like I said, completely unrelated to technology. It's a video game I've been enjoying very much recently. It's called Knockout City. And it's basically dodgeball on steroids. Like if, uh, I always say it's like a basically like a fighting game of dodgeballs because it plays a lot like a fighting game of reaction-based reaction-based gameplay and actually trying to juke out opponents psychologically. And yes, uh, it has been giving me a lot of pleasure and a lot of fun in the past few months. So if you're into video games, definitely, and especially multiplayer games, check that one out. Okay, Martin, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Pleasure being on. Thank you. Then I'd say uh, tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. And have a great day, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.